WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Something that has troubled researchers for a long time is that they don't know how to deliver certain things to the body. Whenever we deliver things to the body, it has to go through so many different barriers. It can be that you can ingest it or put it through your skin, or there's so many other ways that we can intake drugs or therapeutic agents. Today, we're here with Victoria Tomajian to talk to us about delivery vehicles. Victoria, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Victoria Tomajian, and I am a third-year PhD candidate in the Biomedical Engineering Department in the Countag Lab. And what do you study, Victoria? Uh, I study extracellular vesicles as a delivery tool. Uh, Extracellular vesicles are basically these small particles that cells naturally release that are a method of cell-to-cell communication. To borrow a phrase from John Kletka, who I believe you've had on the show before, they're basically like envelopes of information that cells can send to other cells. It's like science communication on the cellular level then, essentially. Yeah, basically they are involved in a large array of biological processes, like they've been shown to be involved in immune system activation, they've been shown to potentially help progress cancer, a few things like that. So there are many ways that extracellular vesicles can be applied. What do you do specifically with them? Uh, I refer to them as extracellular vesicles because I study both exosomes and microvesicles. So I am specifically looking at them as a delivery tool to the heart after you have a heart attack. There's a theory that extracellular vesicles or EVs from certain types of cells are more likely to go to different areas of the body. And one of these cells uh, interest is immune cells. Immune cell extracellular vesicles are believed to naturally traffic to areas of inflammation because potentially of markers they might have from these immune cells, which already naturally traffic to areas of inflammation. One of those areas of inflammation is your heart after you have a heart attack. Uh, These immune cells called monocytes and macrophages naturally accumulate there um, to try to help your heart repair itself after you have a heart attack. And so what I'm hoping to do is take monocyte macrophage extracellular vesicles and use them to deliver um, any kind of therapeutic load, like a drug, to the heart after you have a heart attack. Okay, so therapeutic materials are being delivered through these extracellular vesicles to the heart region whenever a heart attack occurs. But it has me thinking, is it possible to actually have these extracellular vesicles sent before a heart attack occurs to help maybe serve as a preventative measure? Well, that comes down to the trafficking aspect. Extracellular vesicles are a really new field. Um, We don't know a lot about their trafficking in vivo or in a body. So because I am proposing to use the natural selective uptake to areas of inflammation, if the heart isn't inflamed, in theory, these vesicles from these immune cells shouldn't go there naturally. So I would have to look at a different type of cell to give me EVs that could potentially go to the heart when if it wasn't inflamed. Okay, that makes sense to me. And just to clarify for our audience, can you define what a heart attack is? 
Yes, a uh, heart attack is basically a death of heart tissue that results from a lack of oxygen. So say you have oxygen traveling through your blood vessels, but it can't get to your heart anymore. Those cells that can't get oxygen start to die over time. And basically that's what happens when you have a heart attack. It's the death of that heart muscle from a lack of oxygen. So what are the EVs trying to deliver to the heart after those tissue is dead? Can you revive the tissue or maybe try to heal the heart after? That's actually a big question in uh, cardiac repair. See, most of your cells can divide after an injury or after death. Say, if you get a cut on your skin, your skin will heal itself, right? With your heart, your cardiomyocytes or your heart muscle cells don't really divide. Uh, there is some evidence that they might divide each once in your lifetime, maybe, but they won't divide in response to a injury. So basically, that dead heart tissue can't be repaired naturally by the body. Instead, you get scar formation, which may allow you to survive, but isn't ideal for continued heart function. So yes, a big goal of cardiac gene therapy is to perhaps figure out some way to get that cardiac tissue to divide and repair and actually repair that patch of damaged heart. In particular, why are these extracellular vesicles derived from these immune cells and not from any other type of cell in the body for these heart attacks? So EVs are released from almost every type of cell. Um, you could, in theory, do this project with uh, EVs from a few different cells. I chose to focus on monocyte macrophage-derived EVs because there have been other studies that have shown these EVs going to both uh, sterile inflammation, which basically means just inflammation induced by a chemical agent. So they basically could give a mouse um, an injection and have inflammation in one area, as well as to cancer, which is also inflamed. So I decided to expand on that inflammation delivery to a new target, which for me was the heart. Why are extracellular vesicles or EVs such a great tool for delivery, especially to the heart? Part of why they're such a great delivery tool is because they are already naturally involved in cell-to-cell -cell communication and already naturally deliver things from cell to cell. And in addition, they have naturally occurring biocompatibility because they are produced by a cell. Something like a liposome or a virus isn't natural to your body and can promote an immune reaction. That isn't to say it's not possible that EVs could induce an immune reaction at all. It's just that because they are naturally produced by their cells, it is believed they're less likely to. They can also cross natural barriers. And as mentioned, EVs from different cells might naturally traffic to different areas, which is almost like a natural targeting capabilities, unlike something we'd have to engineer. You had mentioned that these EVs can cross barriers and are derived from these cells, but that has me thinking, how large are these EVs anyways? The size of an EV is something that's a little debated in the field, and it also depends on the type of EV that you have. There are three types of extracellular vesicles. You have apoptotic bodies, microvesicles, and exosomes. And these differ from each other one, based on their size, and two, basically how they're formed. Apoptotic bodies are a bit larger 
they're usually on the scale of a couple microns, which in comparison to a cell is maybe a tenth to like a third of the cell that it came from. These are formed by dead or dying cells. Uh, you have microvesicles, which are about 100 nanometers to 1,000 nanometers in diameter. These are released from an outward budding of the cell membrane. Basically, the cell membrane pinches off into the space outside of the cell. And then you have exosomes, which are about 50 to 150 nanometers in diameter. And these are formed by an internal budding of an internal body that forms from the cell membrane. For reference, one nanometer is about one ten thousandth the diameter of a piece of human hair. So very, very small. Yeah, it's pretty small. Victoria, you had mentioned that exosomes are much smaller than microvesicles. Why would you need to look at both of them then? Why not just focus on exosomes? So that kind of depends on what you're using um, your delivery agent for. So another study um, that was produced by a current um, professor at MSU, Dr. Masamitsu Canada, showed that only microvesicles were capable of delivering DNA to a target cell. Exosomes were not capable of doing this. Have you ever done this? Yes, um, this has been something that I've tried with cancer cells from cancer cell to cancer cell and something that I've started trying with uh, human cells, um, looking with human monocytes to um, other human cells, and then even more recently with human monocytes to human cardiac organoids. Nice. I think it's really cool that you've had experience seeing how these cells communicate through these EVs. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what an organoid is and how that's different from an organ? Basically, in research, when we're studying cells, we tend to grow them in flat sheets on plastic. Um, what an organoid is that's different from that is it's a basically self-organized 3D structure of cells that you have growing in a dish. Um, it's not quite like an organ, but it is a more simplified version of an organ that we can study in culture or in a dish. If a cardiac organoid is just composed of cells that are from the heart, why not just get stem cells and differentiate them into heart cells and see what happens there? So these organoids are actually formed from human stem cells. These are stem cells that are called induced pluripotent stem cells, meaning that they were a different type of cell that we have transformed into a stem cell. And then we can give them other factors to make them differentiate into a different lineage or make them more like different cells. These cardiac organoids that I have mentioned in this previous study that I did were actually produced by students from Dr. Aitor Aguirre's lab at the IQ. And one of his students is actually beginning to mentor me on how to produce these cardiac organoids myself. To reiterate what we have been saying, is that extracellular vesicles and exosomes are so small. How do you derive them from a cell? Since they're so small, how do you even know that you have them? So there are a few ways that we can isolate um, extracellular vesicles. So first, we have to let the cells produce them. The cells naturally produce these EVs. You don't have to do anything special to them. So you can seed cells in a dish and add media and just leave the media on 
for how, however long you want. Uh, I typically do 24 to 48 hours. And then we can remove the media and do a few different processes to try to get these EVs from that media. Um, there are some commercially available products that you can use, um, such as ExoQuick um, that I have used once or twice in the past. The method that I typically use is called differential ultracentrification. Basically what this means is um, we can use this machine called a centrifuge, which allows us to spin the media very, um, however quick we need to try to get things of a certain density to go to the bottom of that liquid. So when you have this free media, you can have a few different things in it. For example, we can have cells in it. So first we wanna get rid of the cells. So we'll spin this media at one speed to try to get all of those cells. And eventually it gets to the point where we are just trying to spin that media so fast and for so long that all of the EVs from the liquid go down to the bottom of a tube. That's assuming that everything that reached the bottom of the tube is only extracellular vesicles. But how do you actually know that that is the only thing that is in there? And how do you know that it's not mixed in with other stuff? So this is kind of a drawback to using this method is you don't really know. In theory, anything of a similar density could also be at the bottom of your tube. Um, what you can do is you can try washing it with, say, different buffers um, to try to get rid of anything extra that's there. Uh, you can also try purifying them through using antibodies to certain protein markers that are specific to EVs, but this method is a lot more expensive and time-consuming, so we generally tend to assume that the pellet that we have at the end of this step is EVs, and we can confirm that by looking for these protein markers or by looking at the size. It makes sense that there are specific protein markers for these. Do you use these protein markers to possibly image it or track it afterwards whenever you're trying to use them as a delivery vehicle? You could. There are some studies that have basically put uh, fluorescent probes onto EVs using these protein markers, or because they have a lipid membrane like a cell does, you could try to stain the lipids and use fluorescence that way. Um, for me personally, for imaging EVs, I have used two different techniques. Um, one is bioluminescence imaging, and then the other is magnetic particle imaging. What are the differences between those two techniques that you had just mentioned, and what is the advantage of using one over the other? Basically, these two imaging techniques um, differ in quite a few ways, but the main thing is what they're reading to get an image. So magnetic particle imaging tracks a iron oxide nanoparticle, but bioluminescence imaging measures light produced by an enzyme and a compound. Normally, we like to ask what our interviewees are doing on campus, but since everything is closed down now, we would actually like to hear about how our interviewees are dealing with the quarantine. How have you been passing the time during these last couple of weeks? Mostly reading a lot of papers. It's almost kind of nice to have this time out of lab to really think about our projects. Um, other than work, I play a lot of Dungeons and & Dragons and other role-playing game systems. And so I've been using this time to catch up with old friends, uh, people I haven't talked to in a while, and sit down and play these games together online. 
Yeah, I agree. Right now is a pretty good time to catch up on your reading and thinking about your project. I'm happy that you're able to catch up with your old friends virtually through Dungeons and Dragons. I've heard that that game is usually something people do in person. How are you doing that virtually now? So the nice thing about kind of D&D getting back into mainstream culture through things like Stranger Things or the immense popularity of Critical Role, a broadcasted D&D game, is that there are actually quite a few tools for playing D&D online now. One of the ones that I've used is called Roll20, which basically allows us to talk to each other and have all of our information together and also be able to view a battle map together. I've also played using a lot of the platforms that I'm sure people are using for meetings now, like Zoom or Google Hangouts, where it's more of a theater of the mind thing where we just try to explain what we're doing to each other. I actually think it's a really good hobby for other graduate students to have, or any student really, because it's something that encourages quick thinking, problem solving, and working together as a group to accomplish a common task, like what you're doing a lot of the time in grad school or in future careers. You know, I could see that, actually. I could uh, totally get how playing Dungeons & Dragons can promote those kinds of skills. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Victoria, and good luck on your research. Thank you so much, and I hope both of you are having a great time in quarantine as well. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Fuentes for Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Sophie Sagan, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandron, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. This show, as well as the entire Impact 89FM podcast lineup, can be found online at impact89fm.org or by searching for The Sci-Files on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on The Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at sci-files at impact89fm.org. See you next week on The Sci-Files. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.